Reading Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 21. See then that ye walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all the things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. When you got on that plane, I was sure it was over. I left the airport afraid I'd never see you again. And then you showed up the very next day. That was a good surprise. You know, I think about the decision you made. Maybe I was being naive, but I believed that we would grow old together in this house. That we'd spend holidays here and have our grandchildren come visit us here. I had this image of us all gray and wrinkly and me working in the garden and you repainting the deck. <sighs> but things change. If you need this, Jack, if you really need this, I will take these kids from a life they love and I'll take myself from the only home we've ever shared together and I'll move wherever you need to go. I'll do that because I love you. I love you. And that's more important to me than our address. I choose us. Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy, uh, co-wrote a great book entitled The Meaning of Marriage. And in that book, they talk about how in our culture, when we get married, we do so because we've found somebody that we think is wonderful, right? And there's all this attraction and love and gooeyness and, you know, uh, rainbows and butterflies and all the things that should be there. But a year or two later, and he writes, sometimes... A lot sooner, three things will happen. Number one, you will begin to realize after you marry this wonderful, wonderful person that this wonderful, wonderful person is really, really selfish. He bought himself new golf clubs. I can't believe that. He leaves dishes everywhere. And he took my piece of cake out of the fridge. The second thing that he says will happen 
is this, that you will begin to realize that at the same time that you've been realizing this wonderful person in your life is selfish, that you begin to realize also that they are going through a similar process about you. They're really realizing how selfish you are. She bought three new dresses. She leaves clothes everywhere, and she stole my piece of cake. And then number three, he says, usually you will acknowledge your own selfishness in part, but here's what will inevitably happen, that you will conclude ultimately that your spouse's selfishness is more problematic than your own. Hey, I may have spent some money, but that's nothing compared to stealing my piece of cake, right? And that's especially true if you perceive or you feel like you've been hurt or in the past or had a hard life in the past. You'll say something like this, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but you don't understand where I'm coming from. And if you really understood me and what I've been through, then you would, under and our perceived pain and hurt ends up blinding us to our own selfishness and we give ourselves an automatic justification for behaving the ways that we do and being selfish and we conclude that our spouse has the bigger problem. And Keller writes, that's where most couples find themselves and it's usually sooner rather than later. So here's what we're doing. God thought up marriage and so what happy couples know is that the secret of marriage, it lies with God. And God has communicated to us through scripture. And so there's gotta be some things in there that tell us how to navigate this thing called marriage. And so what we're laying out is several of those secrets about marriage in this series. And last week, we stumbled on this, that happy couples know that you never marry the right person. Everyone who exchanges rings with another person, has issues. And so what do you do about that? Well, you do for your spouse what Jesus did for the church. That's Ephesians chapter five. What did he do? He gave himself up and that's where we start. And so last week we started with this whole text on marriage from Ephesians chapter five. And today uh, I wanna put some context around that and I wanna just uh, zero in on two phrases that will help us uncover more of what happy couples know. So we're gonna look, the key verse is verse 21. And verse 21 is interesting because depending on the kind of version that you're reading from, you'll read different things. If you're in the English Standard Version, it reads this way, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, it's kind of a continuation of what's come before. If you're reading from the NIV, it will say this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, it's a brand new thought. And the question is, which is it? Which, which, what's going on? Is it a new thought or is it a thought from the text before? And commentators will tell us, yes, it is. Paul 
is so smoothly transitioning from one thought to another that it's really hard to know where the first thought ends and where the second one begins. And Paul, what we are told by the people who study this really well is that Paul intended it to be that way. And it means this, that we need to pay attention to what comes before this classic text on marriage because it has bearing on what comes after. And so in the text just before this, Paul talks about living a spirit-filled life. And there are a few phrases that are um, indicative of what a spirit-filled life looks like. He says, live as not as unwise, but as wise. So a spirit-filled life looks like being wise in a world that is pretty foolish. Next slide. It looks like this, making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's what filled with the Spirit. That's another way to be filled with the Spirit. It means that we're, we always have a song in our, in our heart and we have a, a hum to our lives. And uh, the other part that goes along with this is to be thankful, always giving thankful. We always have a reason to say, God, thank you for this life. I love it. And there's a song in my step. And then the last characteristic of a spirit-filled life is this text that we're going to zero in on, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And after he describes what a spirit-filled life looks like, he immediately turns our attention towards examples of what that might look like, uh, the practice fields, if uh, if you will. He talks about marriage in the rest of chapter five. He talks about families and he talks about workplaces in chapter six. And each of those three things, those areas are areas of life where the principle of submitting to one another plays out in practice. And so the principle is spirit-filled submission to each other. Why? Because we have reverence for Christ. And the first practice field for that kind of submission is this marriage arrangement. And so I want you to understand first what Paul assumes. What Paul assumes, what he's doing is he's laying out the foundation for everyone, whether you are married or not today, Paul is talking to you. you if you have a spirit-filled life, then it will show up as wise and thankful and a song in your step. And it means finally that you have learned to serve other people in your life. And Paul says, that's the starting point. And then he says, if you want to have a marriage, a family, a workplace, if you want to sing in all of those areas of your life, if you want life to hum in all of those different practice fields, then you will have learned already how to get out of yourself and out from the center and put other people's needs ahead of your own. And so here's what happy couples know, that self-centeredness is the cancer of marriage. Self-centeredness is the cancer of marriage. It is the main enemy of a good marriage. It is the main problem. It is the main difficulty of any marriage. And to truly get away from the grip of self-centeredness 
ultimately takes nothing less than the Holy Spirit. I think that's where Paul is driving us. But Paul is assuming that if we follow Jesus, that we all have the Holy Spirit and that we are spirit-filled. And that means that we are somebody who has learned to put other people ahead of ourselves. We've learned not to be absorbed by our own problems and our own needs. And he assumes that as a baseline about everyone who has chosen to follow Jesus. And so if you've learned unselfishness with the help of the Spirit, that's where Paul starts. And then he says, okay, if you're married, let's take it a step further. And so before we go to the married part, let's just do what Paul does and let's step back and let's ask ourselves, every, everybody in the room, whether you're married or not, let's ask ourselves this, have we found the Savior? Have we found Jesus? We submit to one another, why? Out of reverence for Christ. Have you found reverence for Christ to such a degree that it leads to serving others? Now, there are a few words that we need to tackle there because reverence is an interesting word, uh, and it really means fear, fear. Reverence means fear, but fear is also kind of misleading because it conjures up all kinds of ideas about uh, fright and dread and Halloween and that, that kind of stuff. That's not really what we're talking about. So what does it mean? Well, in scripture, we find this phrase, the fear of the Lord, sprinkled in pretty much all over. Um, and what we can learn is um, that it is linked with a lot of different things, this fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is linked with blessedness and joy in Proverbs chapter 28. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord. Happy, joyful is the one who fears the Lord. We learn in Psalm 130 that uh, fear of God is linked with forgiveness. Our forgiveness actually enables us to fear God more and more. Other texts say that we can be instructed in the fear of the Lord, that we can grow in the fear of the Lord, that praise and wonder and delight are found when we have this fear of the Lord. And so what we come to realize is that the fear of the Lord is not so much being afraid of God or scared of God as much as it is this, being overwhelmed by God. Fear means to be overwhelmed with wonder. Fear means to be overwhelmed with wonder. Why? Because God is pure holiness but at the same time, he is pure love, and in him we find more beauty than we find in anything else. And so we're compelled to fall down in awe and wonder before the greatness of all he is and before the greatness of all he has done for us, and we bow to him because we have fallen for him. Now, those of you who are married, or maybe uh, are dating or whatever, go back to the beginning. Isn't that exactly what you had for your spouse for sure at the beginning? Go back in your mind. How did you meet? How, what, what was that moment where you were overwhelmed with him, with her? What was going through your mind? What was happening was you were having reverence, you were having fear, you were overwhelmed with wonder for him, for her. 
We did a little exercise in my small group uh, last week. It was somebody else's idea, and it was a great idea. We decided to come up with a six-word story about how we met uh, and were married. And so if you're familiar with a six-word story, it is exactly that. You use six words to tell a story. And so um, some of our group, uh, we all got together and we each came with our six-word story about how we met and married. This, these were some of our six-word stories. The first one, always friends, he knew before me. Does that tell you a story? Absolutely. What's next? Cool in college, not at camp. They actually went to church camp together. They were not cool to each other, but they got into college and eh, different story. Okay, here we go. First date, six days, ring shopping. Quick, right? Anybody in that boat? Okay, all right. Cute boy, Mrs. Drake's typing class. Next one. Leather miniskirt in typing class. <laughs> what was going on in Miss Drake's typing class, I wonder? What's the next one? Met at the mental health center. There's a story there, right? You, you know there is. Next one. Pink sweats, yogurt, movie, best friends. Now, there's one more, and before I give it to you, I need to set it up this way. We have a couple in our group, and he is a vegetarian, and she is not, okay? So she came with her six-word story about their first date. It was this. The only time he ate meat. Oh, isn't that great? That's like gooey goodness, right? That's also what that is. That's fear. That's reverence. That's being overwhelmed, being so enthralled with somebody that you, you throw your vegetarian ways out the window, <laughs> right? Not forever, but for tonight, okay? Um, and you're willing to do anything. Reverence is that when, when our focus is so fixed on someone who is not us, that we're all of a sudden outside of ourselves and we're not thinking about ourselves anymore. We're thinking about just them and our actions will follow. Our actions always follow our focus, and so go back to the beginning. You did some things for your spouse at the beginning. Wow. And it was because you were overwhelmed by them. And when we're focused on our spouse, we serve. We give ourselves up. We submit. And now that enchantment that hypnotizes and rivets us initially to our spouse is the same kind of thing that Paul says should draw us to the person of Jesus. Uh, we see his beauty. We are overwhelmed at his love and his forgiveness. We're focused on him and it gets us outside of ourselves. It puts us in a position where we are not thinking of ourselves and so we can serve other people unselfishly and we're willing to do whatever Jesus asked because we are overwhelmed by him. And Paul says, even before you get to any of the marriage, any of the family stuff, any of the co-workers that I'm going to talk about, go back to Jesus. Do you have a fear for Jesus, a reverence that has changed you? You will fear something in your life. You will be overwhelmed by something. What will it be? 
Anything that you put there besides God won't work long term. And your capacity to put others first will be diminished if God doesn't sit in that chair. Only God can fill a God-sized hole. And until I am overwhelmed enough by God's love, and until I put God in the proper place in my life, then my relationships, married or not, will never be what they could be otherwise. And so that's where we have to start. Do I have a reverence, a fear, an awe for Jesus that then translates into a reverence and a fear and an awe for other people in my life? Now, Paul assumes that as followers of Jesus that we will. He assumes that it's just then a matter of moving the way of relating to others into different uh, fields of practice. And the first one he comes to is the marriage relationships. And so, what this awe, this reverence looks like is one spouse being willing to eat meat for the other if he needs to, and it also, at the very same time, looks like the other spouse being willing to give up meat if she needs to. By the way, that's how that marriage works. And that's two people having enough fear and being overwhelmed by each other that they're now focused on the other person. They're outside themselves making the other person the center and they are willing to submit. And that's what happy couples know, that self-centeredness is the cancer that needs to be cut out. And the key to it is focus. Your actions will always follow your focus. Are you focused on your spouse because your main focus is on Jesus? And so, how do we get there? If selfishness is our default, um, self-centeredness is where we live, then how do we change that? How do we become unselfish and not self-centered? And that's because it's quite unnatural. Um, it actually, this selfishness, this self-centeredness needs to be trained out of you. Um, the military knows this. Some of you know that the military knows this. Um, what happens when you join the army, or for some of you, what happened when you were told that you were going to join the army? Um, this happens, right? And all of a sudden, you get off that bus, and your life is no longer your own. And the army starts to beat the self-centeredness out of you. You no longer get to choose your clothes. You no longer get to choose your glasses if you wear glasses. You no longer get to choose your haircut. You no longer get to choose the, your socks. You don't get to choose when you eat. You don't get to choose what you eat. You don't get to choose when you sleep or for how long. Your life becomes someone else's. It becomes Uncle Sam's. And the reason that there's no room for independent thought or action inside the army is because they need to be one group that is working towards one collective goal. In order for the army to work and do what it does, everybody has to be in concert. Everybody has to be on the same page. In order for greater unity and the whole to act as one, each individual must defer their decisions and their desires for the good of the whole. And it's the same in marriage. Paul actually uses a word that is from the military. Submit is a Greek military word that basically means to fall in line. That's what it means, to fall in line. And so it's a private, when we submit to each other, it's a private saying, sir, yes, sir. 
to whatever his commanding officer asks. And Paul says, that is what makes happy marriages. It's not a wife saying to her husband, yes, sir. It's not a husband saying to his wife, yes, ma'am, but it is both. It is both a husband and a wife saying at the same time over and over again, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, to each other. And the antidote to self-centeredness is to submit to one another. And why are we doing that? It's because we are overwhelmed at what Christ has done for us. And we are falling in line with each other. And the army can't have uh, soldiers going AWOL in different directions and still do what it needs to do. And marriages can't have spouses going in two different directions and survive either. And so here's what happy couples know. They know that self-centeredness is the cancer of marriage. So here's what they do. They treat their own self-centeredness more seriously than their spouse's. What should we do about self-centeredness? We should treat our own self-centeredness more seriously than we do our spouses. Now, I think a picture, the picture of eating meat when you're a vegetarian is the perfect kind of example of that, but that's just one small area of life. And so I wanna be real practical as we close today. And there are areas in marriage that are statistically make or break areas when it comes to marriage. There are about five of them. And in each area, the goal is, as married people, to surrender ourselves, to fall in line with each other so that our marriage is on the same page in each of these five key areas. Uh, without um, being in line in each of these five areas, your prospect for a happy marriage will be much, much less. But if we can get on the same page in these five areas, your prospects for a happy marriage go way up. Number one is money. And I'm only gonna spend time on this first one because it's the most important. I put money first because it is by far the number one reason that married people fight about. Stat uh, statistics tell us that infidelity is the number one cause of divorce. And it will probably always be that way. But number two, guess what, is this. The second biggest reason people split up is because they can't get on the same page about their money, about their money. And lots of things compound that problem. If you were married in the last five years, then nine out of 10 of you started off your marriage with debt. And I'm not talking about a mortgage debt, a house, uh, a house. I'm talking about all the other debt, consumer debt, credit cards, student loans, car loans, medical debt, everything but the house. A generation ago, when my wife and I got married, 43% of us started off marriage with debt. Do you know what that figure is today? It's double, 86% of couples that get married right now start off with debt Studies show that the larger the debt is in the household, the more likely it is to be the number one issues couple will fight over. People with $50,000 worth of debt are three times more likely to fight about money than those with only $10,000 in debt. And debt isn't the only pain point. One out of three uh, couples confessed that they had hit a purchase from their spouse because they knew their spouse would not approve of the purchase. And what does that do? It creates cracks and it creates, it breaks trust in the relationship. 
And the good news is that all of that trust can be built back. How? If we approach this money scenario by treating our own self-centeredness more seriously than our spouses. Dave Ramsey has a great quote that I stumbled upon this week. He says, you will win with money when you decide your family's future is more important than any toy you want to buy. What is that? That's getting at the root of our selfishness. Other stats reveal that happy couples in marriages almost without exception, almost 94%, have big, important conversations about money. You wanna win in marriage? Lay it out on the table. Get everything out. Make sure everybody's on the same page. 87% of couples who say that their marriage is great also say that they and their spouse work together to set long-term goals for their money. In other words, they're on the same page, they agree, they are falling in line with each other. On the other hand, people who say their marriage is just okay or uh, their marriage is in crisis only talk about money half as much and probably it's shouting rather than rational discussion. When you get together, and you're in submission to each other about money, what happens is that you build a strong foundation and a relationship working for each other, not against each other, and that reduces anxiety, and it creates healthier marriages. So give yourself up, submit. Talking about money is more valuable to your marriage than money itself. Second, kids. Are you on the same page? How many are you gonna have? How should they be raised? How do we carry out discipline? When do we do that? And when do we, and when and how do we move these little birds out of the nest so that they don't come back, okay? Uh, parenting doesn't happen automatically, and so be in agreement early. Number three is God. If you have the same faith, then you'll most likely have a higher chance of staying together. When your faith is aligned, it means that your value systems and your guiding principles are aligned as well. And that's your natural roadmap through life when tough times come. And also, I need to point out here, I need to remind you, when it comes to your spouse and God, that there is only one Savior, and it is not your spouse Don't expect your marriage to meet all your needs and heal all your hurts. There's only one person on the planet in the history of the universe that can absolutely do that, and that's Jesus. Don't ask your spouse to be a savior that they were never designed to be. Number four, in-laws. The saying is true. Uh, You don't marry a person, you marry their family too. And Dave Ramsey has another quote that I love. He always says that even if you can afford to buy a house and you get married, you should wait at least six months to a year before you ever think about buying a house because you need to factor in how far away you need to be from your in-laws. Love that. What ways are we demonstrating to our spouse that we are really leaving our father and mother's house and cleaving to our spouse and making them the priority rather than the household that we just came from. And then number five is sex. Um, for, For a love relationship to be healthy, there has to be a mutual loss of independence. It can't just be one, bo- one way. Both sides need to say to the other, I will adjust to you. I will change for you. I will serve you even though it means sacrifice for me. Carrie Newhoff says this, married people, sex is a gift. 
open it. The more emotionally, relationally, and spiritually close you get to your spouse, the better this gift gets. And so the bottom line to all of these categories is to treat your own self-centeredness more seriously than you do your spouse's. And that's the practical for today. That's the marriage building for today. What happy couples know is that self-centeredness is the cancer to a marriage. And so with my money, with my kids, with my religion, with my in-laws, with, with sex, so if you're having issues in any of those areas, the first place to look is my own self-centeredness. Where am I being selfish, because self-centeredness will always expose itself. And when it does, there are really only two options. This is the other way that uh, Keller concludes his thought that we started with. He says, when self-centeredness exposes itself, the first way to deal with it is just to call a truce. Nobody goes into marriage with the goal of divorce, but we have two selfish people trying to get along, and both of them are, are thinking that the other is more selfish than they are. And so there's this emotional distance that develops as they slowly negotiate a ceasefire. That's the truce that happens, and it means that they come to a point where there's just some things, things they don't talk about. There's some things that come up in the marriage, and they just, mm, no, we're not going to talk about those things. The things that he does that you hate, but you stop talking about them as long as he doesn't bother you about certain other things that he hates about you. And the phrase is, oh, we just don't go there. What's happened? What's happened is you've called a truce and your circumstances have become more important than dealing with your self-centeredness. And in the first option, the truce option, the problem is that no one ever changes for the other. No one ever ends up submitting. And so couples in this kind of boat can seem from the outside very happily married for 30, 40, 50 years. But if they're at Royal Stadium and the kiss cam captures them, the kiss will be forced. There's a second option, and it's trust. That's the alternative. It is for two people in a marriage to decide, you know what? Verse 21 is really there. It really says that. Submit to one another out of reverence, out of fear, out of our overwhelm, for Christ, and they begin to put that into practice. And it's not just a truce, it's not just a ceasefire, it is two enemies who are dropping their weapons and becoming friends and partners. And they each decide that their own selfishness and self-centeredness is more destructive than their spouses. And so they treat it more seriously. They both realize that I am the only one who has complete control over my selfishness. I alone am responsible for this. And so they begin to give themselves up. They stop making excuses and they root out selfishness from their lives, regardless of what their spouse is doing. And if both spouses do that, wow, then the 50th anniversary party is a joy and the cake does not leave an aftertaste at all. It's awesome. And I, I need to say this too, because some of you are like, well, I'm the only one. I'm the only one in the relationship. I'm the, I'm the one here at the marriage you know, series and he didn't come or she doesn't wanna come. I'm the only one here. 
And to you, I need to say this. Even if only one spouse does this and submits and gives themselves up, the prospects that the other spouse will soften and begin to lean into this way of life too are really good. It only takes one of you to start. I'm gonna call the band up. And the Christian principle today is spirit-generated selflessness. Um, It's kind of like the gentleness that we talked about in the Fruit of the Spirit series about three weeks ago. It is not thinking less of yourself. It's not even thinking more of yourself in your marriage. Instead, it's just thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And it means that you're taking your mind off yourself. You're focusing instead on your spouse. And you can do that because you have realized that in Jesus, all of your needs are going to be met already. And so your spouse doesn't have to occupy that space anymore and you can give freely to them. The gospel fills our hearts so much that we can handle it when our spouse fails us in some way. And so we can give ourselves up. And in losing ourselves, We find ourselves. In giving our life up, we gain it back. And isn't that the gospel that Jesus preached all along? That's what happy couples know. Father, we thank you that we are not to live for ourselves, but for the other. Um, And we know that that is the single hardest thing about marriage, and yet it is the most important function of being a husband or being a wife. And so help us to look to our Savior Jesus, who gave himself up for us, that we might be beautiful and restored to God. Help us to live that way, out of our overwhelm for you, towards our spouse. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.